Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Sunday, February second episode of Poets and Muses, where we chat with poets about their inspirations. I'm your host, Imogen Arate. You can follow us at poetsandmuses.com and via social media on Instagram, Twitter, as well as SoundCloud under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter either at poetsandmuses.com or at the upper right-hand side of the Poets and Muses SoundCloud page. With us today is Beate Sigridotta, with whom I will be discussing her poem "Dancing in Santa Fe" and my poem. I couldn't visit Dachau. Before we do that, however, I'm going to go over all the poetry events taking place in the Phoenix metropolitan area during the week of February 3rd. On Monday, February 3rd, from 6 to 8 p.m., Joy Young will be hosting the first of an eight-part workshop called "From Page to Stage: Exploring Spoken Word." This will be taking place at the Phoenix Center for the Arts at 1202 North Third Street in Phoenix. From 8 to 10 p.m., Phoenix Firebird Events will be hosting its weekly Open Mic Mondays at Smooth Brew Coffee, which is at 504 East Roosevelt Street in Phoenix. Signing up to get on the mic starts at 7 p.m. On Tuesday, February 4th, from 6 to 8 p.m., Connect and Heal will be hosting its weekly poetry writing workshop in Room 101 of the Chandler Community Center. Which is at 125 East Commonwealth Avenue in Chandler. From 8 to 9:30 p.m., Lexi Lockett will be hosting her monthly Pocket Thoughts Poetry Night. This time featuring Nadine Lanier, DJ Leary, and Atlas Saint Cloud, who was a previous poet guest on Poets and Muses. This will be taking place at Fiddler's Dream Coffee House at 1702 East Glendale Avenue in Phoenix. On Wednesday, February fifth, from five to ten p.m., Walt Richardson II will be hosting his weekly Walk-in Wednesdays Open Mic Night at the Tempe Center for the Arts, which is at seven hundred West Rio Salado Parkway in Tempe. As always, from five to six, youth performers will go on, and from six to ten, all other performers will go on. Signing up for the first part starts at four forty-five p.m. Signing up for the second part starts at five p.m. On Thursday, February sixth, from six to nine p.m., Fatso's Pizza will be hosting its weekly open mic night at thirty one thirty one East Thunderbird Road in Phoenix. From seven to eight thirty p.m., Sozo Coffee House will be hosting its monthly open poetry night at nineteen eighty two North Elma School Road in Chandler. From eight to eleven p.m., Quentin Oni will be hosting his weekly open mic at Jobot Coffee and Bar at three thirty three East Roosevelt Street in Phoenix. Signing up to get on the mic starts at seven thirty p.m. From nine forty five p.m., Atlas Saint Cloud will be hosting his weekly poetry writing workshop at the Welcome Diner, which is at nine twenty nine East Pierce Street in Phoenix. On Friday, February seventh, from six thirty to nine p.m., Aliento will be hosting its open mic with the theme of vision for this month. This will be taking place at the Phoenix Hostel and Cultural Center at ten twenty-six North Ninth Street in Phoenix. You can register to get on the mic at alientoaz.org/openmic. Again, that's alientoaz.org/openmic. 
Aliento is A-L-I-E-N-T-O from 7 to 8.30 p.m. Pina Joseph will be hosting her monthly First Friday Poetry featuring Sarah Quartermeyer and Tyler Mayer. This will be taking place at the Changing Hands Bookstore at 6428 South McClintock Drive in Tempe. From 7 to 10 p.m., First Friday Poetry on Roosevelt Row will be taking place on the back porch of Local First Arizona, which is located at 407 East Roosevelt Street in Phoenix. From 10.07 p.m. to 6.07 a.m., Shearprint Media will be hosting its Couples Therapy 2020. You can text or call 954-515-9893 for the location. On Saturday, February 8th, from 11 a.m. to 12.30 p.m., Shirts Leona will be hosting her third of five spoken word, The Art of Slam Poetry Workshop at Phoenix Center for the Arts, which is at 1202 North 3rd Street in Phoenix. From 4.30 to 7 p.m., Spread Salam Celebrate Black History will be taking place at Tempe Mosque or the Islamic Community Center at 131 East 6th Street in Tempe. From 6.30 to 10 p.m., Sozo Coffee will be hosting its open mic night at 1982 North Elma School Road in Chandler. From 7 to 9 p.m., Tamika Sanders or Dr. T will be hosting her I Got the Last Word Poetry Contest at Aroma Mocha Coffee, which is at 506 East Western Avenue, Suite 103 in Avondale. On Sunday, February 9th, from 6 to 9 p.m., Infuse Open Mic will be taking place at Phoenix Center for the Arts, which is at 1202 North 3rd Street in Phoenix. Signing up to get on the mic starts at 5.30 p.m. And now let us turn to our poet guest of the week, Beate Sigristata. Hi, Beate. Thank you very much for coming on to Poets and Muses. Thank you, Imogen. Thank you for having me on Poets and Muses. It's, it's excellent to be here in Phoenix visiting. Yeah, it's a pleasure having you here. I'm really impressed with the program that you're doing. Thank you. And you brought with you the title poem of your book, Dancing in Santa Fe. Before we get into that, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. I grew up in, Ger- in Nuremberg, Germany, mm-hmm. the Nuremberg of uh, Hitler's parade ground, as well as the Nuremberg trials. Mm-hmm. And um, I grew up, as I sometimes like to say, between fairy tales and reality. Mm. It was very exciting to be a child. I grew up very close to the castle, and mm. I read and was told many, many fairy tales. And then suddenly there came this big surprise that where we were doing our Sunday afternoon walks, we had to take a streetcar to get there, mm-hmm. and then we'd take these long walks. And it happened to be former, formerly Hitler's parade grounds, and mm. I thought, parents, how could you do this to me? Mm. We had mm. these beautiful times here together, and mm. you never told me about the history right. or anything. And of course, the parents didn't. When I grew up, the climate in Germany was pretty repressive. You didn't talk about right. the war. There was a lot of feelings of guilt and, and, right. and so on going on. Right. 
And then I was very lucky as a high school student, I became an exchange student mm -hmm. and I came to the United States. I mm -hmm. went to Pennsylvania. Okay. And it was a very, very interesting year and I met my future husband there and, mm -hmm. and we, at some point he was drafted and happened to go to Germany okay. to stay for Persian missile that had been his training. So once he was in Germany, we thought it was probably fate that I should come here with him. And, mm. and I did. And I've lived in the United States permanently since 1972. Uh -huh. This is my home. I am a citizen. Right. Now. Wow. What a journey. A couple of things. One is, do you mind sharing which, which school did you went to in Pennsylvania? In Pennsylvania, it was a, a school called Abington Senior Heights. Okay. And it was in a place called Clark Summit. Okay. I lived in a tiny little village mm -hmm. uh, called Chinchilla. You can't find it on the map, but it is not very famous. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, I, I seem to, every time I run into exchange students or students who come from abroad, a lot of times they go to these uh, little schools that sometimes people here have not heard of. And so Correct. it's really yeah. interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and, and this school was very open. There were... During my year, there were five exchange students oh, wow. from, from the larger area. Two of them were from South America, one of them was from France, and then there was me. And who else was there? Oh, yeah, an another one from Argentina. Okay, yeah. so interesting. And the other question was, um, you had said your first husband was drafted, and I think we stopped stopped the draft after Vietnam, right? So was yes. That the... he, he was, this was in 1970. He was one of the last ones who was drafted. Oh, wow. And he really was very unhappy to go. In his heart, he was a conscientious objector, but he didn't want to go to Canada right. and really disappoint his parents who mm. were, you know, in the United States. And, right. You know. right. So he, he went and he was lucky to be trained for something other than going to Vietnam right directly right. yeah I was wondering about that yeah. it sounded like he didn't have to go actually he, to Vietnam he was not in Vietnam no. okay good for him so uh, how did you come to write poetry well I was the youngest in the family and I was very young my brothers are 12 and 10 years older than I am mm -hmm. they were born during the World War Two, mm -hmm. and I was born just just after. Yeah. I was pretty alone as a child, and I had to entertain myself a lot. Mm -hmm. But also, being the youngest in a in a family, I was not very important. So if I had anything <laughs> to say, it was not very significant to anybody mm -hmm. else. So I decided, well, you know, I'm going to write it down and right. for myself. Right. And I started writing as soon as I could. Yeah. I, I was not allowed to go to school until I was six years old, and oh. I was not allowed to learn how to read. At the time, it was like you didn't read early or, or stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I remember I had this book of poems that, of course, I couldn't read because I wasn't allowed to read, but it had these shapes on it, and I would scribble on the outside of it, and mm -hmm. I would, you know pretend that I was writing. And then as soon as I was allowed to, three months after after I started school, wow. I went to the library and got a library card. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> One of my brothers took me. Then it was like, 
I would read, 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 and mm-hmm. write, 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 and, wow. and try to rewriting fairy tales. I right. did that pretty early, and making things adjust to my liking, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is what you can do with writing. Right. And that's that's how I came to writing. I've always wanted to be a writer, and mm-hmm. being a poet, I didn't really make a living out of my writing, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. I've always, in the evening or in the morning or on the <laughs> right. weekends. <laughs> right. So I, I noticed that you write other things besides poetry. and I do write fiction. Mm-hmm. There was a time, of course, that I thought that, um, well, since poetry won't pay my bills, I might write a novel and mm. become famous, but it didn't quite work out for me either because I don't really write the extremely popular mm. fiction. Right. It's tough to become an extremely lucrative author. It and, is. Yeah. It is, and most of my writing friends, we write because it's our passion. Right. We want to do it, but yeah. we'll do everything else to make our living. Right, right, right. So do you mind if I ask you, what did you end up doing for your living? Well, I did two things. One of them was working for a library, which oh, okay. I loved, yeah. but it didn't pay very well. No. And then I I lucked into a legal secretarial position, mm-hmm. and I paid about three times as much as I yeah. would have in the library. <laughs> and so for a lot of years, I, I worked full-time, but then at, at some point I came where, where I could work half-time mm. uh, filling in for, for other secretaries, and I was mm. kind of being a legal secretary where I was already making more than then I was in the library. I could afford to just work half-time and right. did that. Yeah. I always feel like it's such a shame, the economic attrition that happens in publishing. You know, right. I, I started off in publishing for a little bit, but just couldn't afford to stay in it. Oh, so, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really tough. And the way that the in- industry came about is for people who have money, who did it as a leisure activity. So, and it hasn't really changed much over the decades. Right. Again, it's it's a shame because, as you probably know uh, or aware of, um, there's a lot of underrepresentation of many marginalized people from marginalized groups. Right. Because there's a tie-in between both racial, ethnic, as well as uh, economic marginalization. The structure the publishing has also kind of precludes them from being included. Yeah. It's something that always bothered me, you know, because there's always a segment of the population across many different communities that love the written word, and it would be nice to have the representation not only in authors and poets, but also in the industry itself, people who are publishing. Yeah. The thing we have, at least in in this country, is we do have public education. I mean, I was thinking in older times, it was even worse, just the very wealthiest people could even get an education. Yeah. You know, there were no books, there were no, you know, there were scrolls, you'd have to. (laughs) Exactly. I actually had another interview earlier, and we were talking about that before formal education became... Uh, an established system. A lot of people only were able to access education through religious studies. 
Exactly, yeah. You, yeah. you become a monk or a, a nun and you get the appropriate education. Otherwise, right. forget right. it. <laughs> right, exactly. And now there's public education. Unfortunately, the way that it's funded is, again, it's very much towards which parts has money, has a lot more access, a lot more resources. Right. And, and, and I think it's getting more and more restrictive, you know, the, yeah, the, right the private schools are, are doing their best education that nobody can get in it. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. I mean, yes, people can get in it, but the, the, the wide range of, of the population cannot. Right. Exactly. And because there is now um, a tendency towards privatization of education, you know, a lot of charter schools. And I think it's a double-edged sword, right? The charter schools, on the one hand, is able to innovate in the way that the public education system as an entire system cannot because it's, it's very unwieldy in a way. On the other hand, it takes away resources from the public education system, which it desperately needs. Right. Yeah. So hopefully, over the years, they'll be able to integrate that better and also even out the resource access more that's my hope anyway yeah and all of our hope because i think education is just so important yes you know for people to not just learn how to do uh, certain mechanical things like like reading and and and, and scribbling on a, or, or typing but also to think mm -hmm. for themselves yeah exactly it's a helpful first step toward that you have mentioned also in the beginning that you were playing in these playgrounds, you know, your neighborhood basically, which unfortunately plays such a horrific part in history. Mm -hmm. And because of the time that you grew up in, there was a lot of re repression in terms of discussion about what happened in World War II. Yes, there was. And, I mean, you know, people did not want to talk about it. It wasn't that it was forbidden, but people just didn't want to talk about it. Yeah. And, and that's sort of my experience. When I went to Germany, I met with a lot of Germans of different generations. And I felt mm -hmm. like each generation, each decade difference meant a difference on how they view mm -hmm. World War II and mm -hmm. what happened in Nazi Germany and, and the Holocaust. Uh, all of these different interactions, which I think comes out very well in both of our poems. Yes. And if you don't mind reading your poem, then we can demonstrate that and then get more into it. Okay, the poem is called Dancing in Santa Fe. Mm -hmm. Incidentally, I was a dance teacher in Santa Fe in the 1980s, but oh, wow. this is not what the poem is about, as right. you know. <laughs> Dancing in Santa Fe. As soon as I encountered history and Hitler, I became the enemy. This is not a fairy tale or a curse can be undone by climbing glass mountains or making sudden sacrifice. I came to dance late, and at my age, it isn't easy to find a partner. So when Chico and I gelled in Santa Fe at the skylight and danced better than I had danced in years and danced past midnight and found it difficult to leave, of course I agreed to meet again with his friends at Tiny's restaurant and lounge my last night in town. Gabriel danced okay, but he was born in Hamburg. The band went on break. We had a country in common, 
though he went to America as a wee babe. He had just come back from Germany to visit roots, including Bergen-Belsen concentration camp, where much of his family had perished. Gabriel, all I could ever do is honor your pain. I kept wanting to say, as I have wanted to say so many times in my long life, I wasn't even born yet. And as so many times before, I kept my irrelevant silence. For days, I was flooded off and on with tears. Not a lot of comfort at home, just helpless witnessing who, not born German, can possibly comprehend the guilt I am condemned to feel for sins I haven't committed. It is an unspeakable filter on this gorgeous world. I haven't danced much since. The war has been over for more than 70 years. The war is never over. I grew up asking, may I go play in the ruins? Mostly the answer was yes. Once in a while, a child found a bomb and we were grounded for a few days or weeks. A favorite heirloom, a browning piece of paper, January 16, 1948, I wasn't born yet, declares my father, nicht betroffen, not incriminated. I want to honor you, life, by living with joy. The enemy within just laughs. Those others, they just wanted to live, never mind joy. Your sister, dead in 1945, the Jews in concentration camps, the children who played too close to bombs, their chances gone forever. The enemy within is strong. Thank you. I just want the listeners to know that what you read for us is actually just excerpts from the poem. And you can see the entire poem, I guess, in the book. Um, it's the title poem, I believe, the first poem, is it? It is not the first poem, but it is early on in the book. Yeah. Also, it you can find it online um, oh, in, in a magazine called Cultural Weekly. Okay. Even when I first read it, it was really interesting that you talk about the enemy within. The enemy within was how the Nazis framed the Jews as well. Oh, that's, that is a very interesting uh, comment on your part. I hadn't even looked at it that way in terms of the poem. Yes, they were considering them the, the enemy within the country. The same way I, I remember in the, I guess, 70s, uh, when Khrushchev told us we will no longer be your enemy, you're out of luck, you know. You mm. always have to have an enemy to focus on. Right. In some ways, politically, to prosper. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like it's similar now, right? I, you know, when you look at between World War One and World War Two, and how Hitler came to power, and compared to what's happening in the U.S. now, and then as now, there was a growth, a exponential growth in the influx of immigrants. And a lot of them came from Russia, in fact, because of the pogroms mm -hmm. that was happening there in the, I think, the teens and, and also during their revolution. So there was an incoming of Eastern Jewish population. 
And that set off a lot of resentment from Germany. And that led Hitler to be able to latch onto that and really use that to nurture his base. Yeah, there is a similar phenomenon that we have right now. Yeah. The fear mongering. Mm-hmm. We have these, whatever they call them, rapists and, and thieves and, yeah. and, and so on coming in. And it's fear-mongering, and it it sometimes does help politicians to get a real grasp on not necessarily extremely well-educated society. That's the scary part about now. Oftentimes, when I read this poem in public, I do dedicate it to our children, and not only the children that are currently directly harmed, like being in detention centers, but also the children in the future that will have to carry the guilt about what we're doing collectively, what our collective, I guess, mental illness, insanity. Yeah, yeah, and I I think that's one part that people often don't think about, is the aftermath of it. And it comes through really well in even just the excerpts that you read. Since you do mention dancing, do you mind talking about that a little bit? How that is a relevant character in this particular poem? Well, dancing to me is an expression of basically of absolute joy, Mm -hmm. of being loving this life. I did a lot of formal ballroom dancing. I don't think I even learned properly how to ballroom dance until I was in my 30s. But even before then, dancing was just something that I would love to do, just move, Mm -hmm. just be part of my body and Mm -hmm. to express myself in joy. And Mm -hmm. that's what dancing means to me. On the other hand, fairy tales, you know, mean the same thing, the the magical, the the beautiful in this world. And in some ways, I believe that we do live in paradise, only we don't know how to deal with it. (laughs) We make each other so miserable. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we we don't have to, but we do. And somehow we haven't found our way out of that yet. But the way is, pardon my becoming new age-ish, but the way is love rather than fear Mm -hmm. for this world. And the fear-mongers are not going to be our salvation. No, no. I I think that is the acceptance part of love is incredibly important for us to foster because I think everybody, whether or not they're in the state of fear mongering, they love, but they might not love in the most healthy way or the healthiest ways. And some people's love manifests in pain. And you could see a lot of that at this moment in pain and fear. They think that in order to manifest a love for their own, they have to sort of build this both a real and an imaginary wall around themselves to keep out quote-unquote invaders. Right. And the companion side to that, in, in my opinion, is also this big competition. If I'm richer than anybody else or if I'm better than anybody else, then people will love me. Right. And it's not that. <laughs> it, it isn't that, but they imagine, okay, if I can't get it any other way, then will I, I'll just become rich and powerful and, right. and suppress everybody else, and then surely somebody will love me. 
And I'm not sure that that's going to be the case either. No, it's not. I feel like that's why he's pursuing that. Because it's right. like on a string that's always being pulled further away, the closer he seems right. to be getting right. to it. And I honestly have told this to people, and I continue to tell people, is that I do feel sorry for Donald Trump. I obviously feel more sorry for all the people that he's hurting. Right. Because they have no part in his pain. They're only victims of his lashing out. Right, and the pain that's being inflicted is not doing the perpetrator any good. No, it doesn't heal him. Right. It's just lashing out. I mean, if you think of a baby, right, they're lashing out because there's something that they want parents or caretakers to help them fill, but nobody's filling that need. Right. Partly because, well, A, he's no longer a baby, and he does have the benefit of language. Uh, he clearly can express himself when he wants to, even if via Twitter. But he's not using that to really articulate what he wants, partly because he doesn't want to appear weak. Right. But he is lashing out, and he is hurting people. I suppose it benefits people who think that that is okay, that is the right thing to do. Again, it's it's this virtual wall building. Yeah, it, in the end, in my limited view of, of the world, it doesn't benefit anybody. Mm -hmm. it, nobody gets what they want. Everybody wants to be loved, and nobody gets it. And no. to create fear and power doesn't, in the end, they think that they'll get it, but Right. Doesn't. <laughs> right, right. And from your perspective, from having grown up during the post-Second World War time, during Germany's, in many ways, a transition, mm -hmm. you know, from mm -hmm. World War Two to now, to a leader, in many ways, in human rights in Europe, championing human rights. Yeah. You have this special perspective as you have mentioned. And do you mind talking about that a little bit? Because you, you mentioned that in these excerpts, since your parents didn't tell you about it, when did you realize the... Well, basically in, in school, in history, you know, at, at some point history of your... Uh, at first in elementary school, you get, of course, local history and the castle and the right. easy stuff. And then suddenly, probably I was about... 11 or 12, we'd, we'd have history and mm. and we'd get this World War II thing and, and mm -hmm. stuff about concentration camps. And right. that's when I started realizing it. And also when I started reading adult literature, and by adult literature, I mean literature for adults. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I was reading that very early and I noticed that in, in Germany, the literature was very, very dark. Mm -hmm. The contemporary literature, mm -hmm. the poetry was even darker than it is most places. Wow. And, you know, oftentimes poetry is, is a way of expressing people's suffering. So right. it is not always light, but right. it was even even darker. I was reading people like Günter Grass, and, mm -hmm. and it was very dark, and I absorbed that. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that everybody of my contemporaries absorbed it quite as much, but I guess in some ways that was my thing, you know, this, is, right. this was my puzzle of the world to solve for right. myself. When I was an exchange student, I remember getting 
um, one of the history teachers. He had been in World War II and, and you know, he was mm. telling me, it is very difficult to have you in my class. Mm. You, know, you are German and I understand that you're younger right. than the people that I was fighting in, in World War II, but right. it is difficult to have you here. And I was 16, you know, it was mm. like, oh my goodness, you know, I am I'm being held responsible for all of this history that isn't even exactly mine, but right. uh, you don't lose the history of your ancestors. No. You know? When I was reading what you wrote, especially the line where you were saying that I kept wanting to say, as I have wanted to say so many times in my long life, I wasn't even born yet, which I think is fair mm-hmm. to want to say, because for me, it's, I think it's unfair to blame things transgenerationally. At the same time, one of the things this particular part made me think about is what's going on with Americans who are white, uh, European Americans, who say, but my ancestors didn't, or I wasn't born yet when slavery happened. I'm not responsible for that. Mm -hmm. And it's completely understandable, that sentiment, because yes, there was no direct involvement at the same time, a similar parallel between the two countries, there is a transgenerational benefit that no doubt continue to this day. Well, I know at least in this country, there continues to be inequality that's very stark that's being perpetrated in the current generations as well. So there is an argument with that, whereas in Germany, I find, I mean, there's a resurgence of anti-Semitism as well in Germany, but all, all over Europe. And another thing about World War II, many Americans don't realize, unless they do their own research, all of Europe participated. It wasn't just Germany, mm-hmm. even though Germany ran the engine of the concentration camps of the Holocaust. But all of the European governments, they participated. They didn't get six million Jews out of Germany alone. And that's one of the things that we as Americans, and even we as the world, don't really think about. And Germans in particular take the brunt of that blame. Whereas France, the Netherlands, uh, Belgium, all these countries can sort of be like, and we're so beautiful, Europe. That is one of the things that I thought about when I read that particular line. I wasn't even born yet. Yeah, and we don't get out of our ancestral heritage at all because in a lot of ways, that's how all of our wars start. Uh, Resentments, the so-and-sos have done this and that to us, and now we must hammer them back somehow and that's how it all starts and we need to we need to look for and find a way of stopping it yeah yeah i remember when i was in the jewish museum in berlin Mm -hmm. i had a really hard time besides my poem you read i had a really hard time being in that space and i couldn't go look at the holocaust items that they had the memories I got two chances to go to the Jewish Museum, and both times I realized afterwards I avoided going to look at specifically World War II mm-hmm. things. 
And so the first time I, <laughs> I ended up learning a lot more about Einstein, which is interesting in itself and very, very beneficial to, to know. Uh, and the second time I went to the upstairs where they have German Jewish history, which was incredibly enlightening because I found out that Jews came to Germany with the Romans, whereas Roman culture is, despite the fact that Germany in ancient history fought very hard against the Romans, mm -hmm. they celebrate Roman culture. They do. Whereas Jewish culture, they do not. And it came at the same time. It was 70 AD. It came at the same time. And I was also surprised to find out that throughout German history, there have been several purges of the Jewish population. As there have been in, in all of Europe. Yes, um, exactly. Again, it's this the thing that's not mentioned about Shakespeare's uh, Merchant of Venice. Venice. Yes, it's, you know, it's, it's a the, stereotype. The sentiment, the sentiment yeah. has been there. Yeah, as there was in World War II, there were anti-Semites within high ranks in the British royalty in the British uh, armed forces. And, you know, if you look at Coco Chanel's history, she hooked up with a British royal who was an anti-Semite, very well known. Mm -hmm. And all of these things, again, it's ironic that Holocaust is about looking for an escape goat. Mm -hmm. But the end of World War II, there was also an escape goating mm -hmm. of Germany yeah, it was uh, was one focus on one enemy, and yeah. Also, there was the Japanese enemy also. Yes, on the, on yeah, the other side. that was not talked about, and also what the Americans did to the Japanese, not just Japanese Americans in terms of internment, which again is about the enemy within, right? But also dropping the, the atomic, atomic bomb on the Japanese, killing tens of thousands in an instant. Well, everybody else. Yes, for... yes. So all of these, even though some rhetoric you can say that, oh, we're doing it for the greater good, whatnot, this is always the argument, right? But it all comes down to the same result, is that innocent people get killed, innocent people get hurt right. from, from both sides. And more so, of course, in, in recent history than any other time, because when you used to have to fight with the sword and yeah. with, uh, with a stick and, and stuff like that, you had the enemy right in front of you. Now you don't even know how many people you're killing with one bomb. And, yeah. And yeah. now it involves civilians. And yeah, and then more drone than, technology so than, right. as well. But even then, there is attrition for the people who are doing the killings themselves because PTSD is a very prominent phenomenon for drone pilots. Is it? Yeah. So nobody escapes that feeling of sense of guilt. It is more remote. Our technology allows us to kill more people at one time. We live in, in scary times. We do. We do. And, and that's why I see another parallel in terms of this time, as with Germany previous to World War II, is that, again, there are so much not only the resurgence of anti-Semitism against Jews, but anti-Semitism as a larger word against Muslims as well. Right. Um, it's all over the world. And basically racism. Yeah, exactly. And there's the an intersectionality of that. 
And when you were talking about how it's almost revenge, historical revenge, you know, when you're trying to get, you know, because somebody did us did something to us way back when, we now have to do this to them. Right. It reminded me of during the breakup of Yugoslavia, mm, yeah, on that genocide. That was also one of the rhetorics. It's because the Muslim had invaded 500 years ago, and now we get to do this. Now we finally have get our yeah. turn. Yeah. Which is, again, insane, because you're the ones who survived that. Yeah. Right? You're not the one who died. So it's it's really strange how the people who survived feel like, oh, it, we have to take on the mantle of now destroying our... Yeah, it would be like, like women all of a sudden saying, okay, you, you burned all of these witches, and now we're just going to poison you all. Yeah, but we don't do that. <laughs> right, it, it would be a crime. It would be a crime, as it is a crime to suddenly say, "Oh, because your ancestors did this to all people that died, <laughs> that yeah. we remembered, therefore we get to do this to you." It's just like the saying, "An eye for the an eye, eye for an eye. eye leaves everyone blind." Yeah, yeah. So and that's unfortunately where we are. Yeah. There's so much to talk about in your poem. I like what you did in your poem with that, especially at the ending of it. Thank you. So Thank maybe you. you should you should yeah. read that. I mean, when I wrote this, I had no idea I would meet you and I would get a chance to run into a poem that's so resonant in theme. So I really appreciate this opportunity. And so I picked my poem, I Couldn't Visit Dachau. So I'll read that now. When I was in Munich, I couldn't bring myself to visit Dachau. Already exhausted, I fear I would collapse into unmendable parts. Under the emotional encounter, I avoided all the camps. It was an appreciated privilege. Instead, I talked with gentle old German ladies who took me off my itinerary, some to their hometowns, rebuilt post-war. Through broken English, some told me of their sons who lived in kibbutz to atone for generations sins. Others told me about the firebombing of now reconstructed quaint towns of the lake of fire that swallowed the unlucky moments after losing grip of their firmly believed cause thought to assure victory. Sympathy for one's enemy Ideology attached to human faces, also a symptom of privilege, much like that of the luxury of having the time to feel instead of the necessity of self-numbing for survival. Yet my enemy is the conflict that cheapens life, that rationalizes cruelty, as long as I hate their philosophy that demands I weigh suffering to measure their worth in empathy. I ask for better of myself, though I'm unsure if I'd be a hero <laughs> or coward in the times they had lived in or in the era I now live in. That ending just so moves me because we don't have it any easier to make our decisions in these days. We have yeah. to we have to be brave, we have to not be cowards, but mm -hmm. um, it's a tough one. Yeah. Because like I wrote in my poem, we want to dance, we want to enjoy this. 
precious life that we've been given. Right. But so much of our life is not our own, right? Yeah. I like what you do with the idea of privilege, the privilege to actually have the time to feel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Instead of the necessity of self-numbing for survival. Yeah. And I thought that was reflected in your poem as well. The part where you were talking about those others, they just wanted to live, never mind joy. Yeah. Yeah. It's like when the standards are so low, something like joy becomes a luxury. Right. Absolutely. Joy becomes a luxury. Even the privilege of, you know, having an extra piece of bread is is a luxury. Right. The standard of enjoyment of life is way, way low. Right, you know? right. To breathe is a is a privilege. You know? Yeah, yeah. And, and it's amazing that, again, I feel like in this era, our standards are being lowered, steadily lowered. Yeah, and, and the difficult part is, I think even the most right-wing person, if you talk to them one-on-one, and you show them a child that's suffering, mm-hmm. they would definitely say, no, no, we can't, we can't have it like this. Right. But if you just remove it to something that only happens on television and only happens somewhere else, then they get numbed and then nobody yeah. cares anymore. Yeah. And that's a human condition as well. So many of us, you know, when we're looking at individuals, when we look at another person as a fellow human being, suddenly we are much more likely to empathize with them. But if they're seen as a horde, if they're being described in non-human terms, as vermin, as pests, you know, these denigrating terms, then we're much more able to do horrible things to them. And I, I kind of wrote the last it's um, my poem thinking about these experiments that they have done I think right after World War II or even where he's put someone in a lab coat just a regular person in a lab coat and that lab person was saying to the person who's uh, being pulled off of the street saying oh you know you're helping them by giving these electric shocks to them yeah, I don't know the, the name of the experiment yeah. either, but I know what you're talking about, yeah. people giving electric shocks. And, and actually, fortunately, I think the people who were being shocked were actors. Yeah, they were they actors. Were, they were just making sounds. But but the it, idea that, that you could persuade somebody that, that it would be helpful for them to be harming other people, yeah. giving them electric shocks and putting them into a great deal of pain. Yeah, exactly. And... And all it took was this lab coat yeah. on a person. There was no questioning of authority. There was just order taking. Because yeah. the Nuremberg trial had made such a important highlight of this quote of I was just following orders. Correct. And, yeah. and this American social scientist wanted to see if that was only true of Germans or anybody. And it was Americans too. Unfortunately, we, it yeah. is true of most people. Oh, it's it's scary. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Apart from if you're somebody who's prone to question authority, then that's when you would question that in that particular experiment. So it, it's very scary that, you know, there's really nothing, not many particular criteria that would help us to not harm other people. It's just on order. It's why I think, 
you know, education is so very important, right. even though it is underpaid and undervalued, to allow people to think for themselves, right. to think ethically. I'm convinced that even the greatest perpetrators of current evils are, in, in their heart, they don't want to be evil. Yeah, I don't, I don't know who Maybe wakes up and know. say, you know, like, ooh, ha, I get to hurt. I mean, there are yeah. people who do that, but I think I feel like they are in the minority. I think most people, if they realize they were perpetrating evil acts, they would not be able to live with themselves. And so there's a lot of rationalization going on. Even that experiment we just discussed, the person in the lab coat, kept trying to tell them, oh, no, you're actually doing some good by uh -huh. administering these electric shocks. And so that was good enough for a lot of people to say, oh, then I'll keep going because I'm doing some good, even though that person, you can hear that person screaming in pain. So it's, it's very interesting how our minds work as well, how we will rationalize. And speaking of education as well, I, I agree with you, there definitely needs to be good standard education, but I also feel like there needs to be certain education. There needs to be more exposure, more meaningful interactions between people from different communities. Because even just given the World War II example, a lot of the officers, they were very well educated. They were lawyers, they were scientists, they were people that, you know, well, hey, America even brought German scientists who were SS officers into our at atomic program. Mm -hmm. I mean, NASA employed an ex-Nazi officer in our science program in order to put us on the moon. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah the, we, we get opportunistic when it's yeah. good for us. Well, yeah. that is part of the Holocaust. That is part of what motivates people to hurt other people because there was a benefit, right? Because from the deportation of German Jews and uh, Jews all over Europe, their neighbors benefited. Yeah. They, they were able to take over land. I mean, same with Japanese internment. The neighbors benefited. A lot of European American neighbors, they were able to take over their land, take over their businesses, and they never gave them back. And then the additional thing is that we also have the phenomenon of gang involvement, whether it's a gang rape or whether it's a country ganging against one quote-unquote enemy right. and, and that kind of stuff. Then when you get a mass of people involved, then suddenly everybody kind of loses their individual ethics and just says, oh, well, if, if so-and-so can do this, then I'm going to get involved in this as well and yeah. get away with it. Yeah, it's Gang a lot mentality of it. is, is very, very dangerous. Yes, it's true. And it's almost like you can hide your guilt in crowd action. Yeah, then it, it wasn't just you, it was, you know, well, we all... Uh, yeah, you all, we all did it. We all did it. And also, at that point, it becomes very dangerous for one person to say, no, I'm not, because they might the game might turn oh, against yeah. them. And you find that in the oral history of different genocides from today going backwards to all, all of them, where a gang of people are suddenly targeting the minority group or a minority person. Suddenly, a person who might not agree with it is in fear for their lives. It takes a lot of courage the, to stand up, 
right? And that's what, what you're writing about, you know. Yeah. Do we know whether we have that kind of courage? Yeah. Whether we would have had it then? Yeah. Or whether we have it now? Yeah. And it's it's a very important and moving question for, for all of us. Yeah. Because I think in our imagination, we are all heroes, right? No matter yeah. what. But when we are actually caught in the moment, what then that's the do? real test. Then what are we going to do? Because I think of um, you know a person like the White Rose, mm-hmm. who, who did resistance work, who was caught, who was killed. Mm-hmm. Would would we have the courage to go yeah. that far? Yeah, exactly. Because she was in Germany. I mean, and and usually in any war, in any kind of situation like that, they treat people who they see as a traitor much worse. And so you wonder what she went through and. Yeah. yeah, I've had different experiences where I'm caught in a situation and I'm kind of like a deer in the headlights and certain, certain things I wish I had done, I never, I didn't do. And yeah, sometimes you don't have the time, you, you make a split-second decision right. and, and afterwards you might say, I, I should have perhaps done something right. differently, but yeah. I didn't. Right, yeah. And a lot of times, you know, life doesn't prepare you for these situations. <laughs> you know, mm, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot of time when you're caught in it, you're like, it takes a long time. It's like your mind suddenly slowed down. And, you know, it's like it operates in slow motion. And by the time you finally come to a decision, the situation is over. Yeah, life prepares you basically in some ways for fairy tales. You know, if yeah. you if you're doing something good then the results will be good and mm. it doesn't always pan out that way no no yeah that's this is one of the things that i've had discussions with people because i've met a lot of people who's been in many ways very lucky in life because uh-huh. whenever they've tried they've succeeded so they always associate trying with success uh-huh. whereas personally and i i know other people who try very hard in their lives yet for luck, for systematic uh, oppression, whatever reason it is, they can get any leeway into uh, what they're doing. And and this is part of why it's so difficult to explain prejudice to people who've never experienced that. You know, especially people who are successful, as I said, through their own hard work, mm-hmm. because they think, oh, if I just try, therefore, if you just try, you would have been successful. Therefore, you're not successful because you didn't try. Yeah, and I think in, in, in my case, I think oftentimes uh, trying to explain to men while, why I have some kind of difficulties being successful because I've been trained as a woman and I've been held down as a woman right. and, and they just say that doesn't make any sense, you know, if you just try it. Like you said, if right. you just just try hard enough, if you just ask for what you want and what you need, yeah. if you just stand your ground, right. you'll be you'll be successful. And it's not it's not that simple. Case. It, yeah. it isn't that simple. Yeah, because when the prejudice is systemic and sometimes internalized, it's very difficult to break those. One of my poet guests talked about his mom who had wanted to be a doctor. She had dreamt mm-hmm. to be a doctor, but in her generation, she was taught because she's a woman, she could not achieve that. Therefore, she became, I think she mm-hmm. ended up becoming a teacher. 
because she was taught that this is the limit to the ambition that you can have. And in a way, it was internalized. And it takes so much more to fight to get to the things that you want. I mean, in history, there are women who broke those glass ceilings, but it took so much more sacrifice. And for people who's never been caught in that situation, they don't seem to understand that it takes an extraordinary amount of effort that not everybody has. It should not be required of any group of people to always be extraordinary, to reach the same level as everybody else. Right. Right. You have to be extraordinary in order to be a normal, um, to be <laughs> like the norm, average, yeah. in, instead of, of being able to be extraordinary, even compared with the norm. Yeah, exactly. And people who don't experience that sort of systematic oppression don't understand that. They, no, if you're privileged, if you're entitled, you cannot comprehend no. the difficulty of not being entitled, not being privileged. Yeah, especially for people who tend not to be empathetic. I think there are people who are entitled or privileged but still have the amount of empathy required to imagine that, to understand the situation, to put themselves in the shoes even just virtually, you know. But then there are people who are privileged who have never peeked into those worlds and who don't have the empathy to even imagine that scenario and that's problematic <laughs> i think it's the poet adrian rich in one of her essays describes you know when you have the master slave and, mm -hmm. and what, what i'm talking about right now is entitlement versus non-entitlement yeah. the slave will always need to understand the master because the slave will need to be able to facilitate Mm -hmm. her or his own survival. But the master doesn't have to know beans about how, how a slave's mind works or, right, or right. psyche works. Right. And so so the entitled don't have a need to understand the ones that aren't that entitled. And, and that's, that's a difficulty in bridging the understanding between people. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. When you said that, it made me think of the relationship between men and women. Mm -hmm. It's similar, right? Because there's always that complaint from women to men. It's like, you don't understand me. And the men are saying, you're, you're a mystery. It's yeah. like, no, we're not. <laughs> no, we, we really aren't. We're yeah. really very, very real and very... <laughs> yeah, it, it, you, you can't get to know us. You know, it's, it's not the easiest thing in the world, but it's not easy to get to know anyone. Else, you right. know, even ourselves, it's not easy. It takes time. It takes effort. Right. Yet, if you are so privileged, you've been taught that for every man, you know, there are five, six women that's available for you, at mm -hmm. least, then you no longer have the need to understand any of them. Correct. Yeah. So it's, it's really interesting because I just had this discussion with an, another woman about this understanding with Ravenhead? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. That poem, I Diamond Core. Yeah. 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 It's it's that particular thing. It's like you can understand it. Made the effort, you know? Ironically, it's worthwhile, isn't it? Even in a master slave relationship. It is worthwhile to understand yeah. each other, to try and seek out the Yeah. The 
little tunnels in our right. psyches. Right, it's, it's mutually out. beneficial. Yeah. yeah. And yet, I think people fall back onto the laziness of, you know, like, I don't need to make an effort. You know? Yeah. We humans, we have, we have a lot of faults that is very self-limiting. We have a lot to learn. We have a lot of ways to climb out of this yeah. pit. Of, as I think I said before, I, I really do believe we have a potential to live paradise here. Mm -hmm. But we haven't got there yet. No, no. It does take work, but it's and worth maybe, it. It's worth it. Maybe we're, we're not capable, but I have so much hope. <laughs> yeah, I think we are capable, but it would take a few generations to put certain infrastructures into place. Yeah. Um, and it would take a few generations before that to have the understanding to be reflective enough to understand what structures we have to put in place. It is achievable, but we have to be deliberate about the process. And I don't know if, you know, with all the distractions we have in this particular time, I, I don't know if we will get to the point where we're just saying, you know what, let's just put away all the toys and let's concentrate on building a better future. Yeah. Yeah, my, my husband sometimes says sometimes we're both very depressed about what's going on and then, <laughs> and then that's the end but sometimes he's very hopeful and he says in some ways this is kind of the last gasp of patriarchy the last gasp of fascism so it'll get it'll get better but then so. of course we always sigh and say yeah but between now and then <laughs> yes yes that's it's, the it's, thing. it's such a hard <laughs> It is. It really is. And all the suffering that we still have to go through before we we are then. <laughs> yeah, it's true. But I mean, one thing I would suggest, I just interviewed another, a 14-year-old. Mm -hmm. And I had interviewed a 15-year-old previously, Lupe Castro. I, I suggest everybody listen to her episode because she's only in high school and she gives you so much hope. Because you know that there are people like that in the future generations that are ready to take on the fight and that are ready to build a better world. Uh, and her standards are high. She doesn't have to build just up to certain things that we have to build up to. So, it, yeah. you know, people like that gives me hope. And, and young people especially because they have that kind of energy that is yeah. still untrammeled. You know, right. by the time you get to be older, you get kind of tired because yeah. you've put so much energy out there. And what's happened? Not much. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it does, again, it goes back to some other conversation I have, which is that each generation, we come into this world without transgenerational memory. So we have to learn anew. We come in ignorant and Hopefully by the end we become a little bit more knowledgeable and and hopefully for the good of all of us. And I, I feel like though we don't have that transgenerational memory through each generation's struggle by building higher standards, each new generation is taught with those newer, better standards. Yeah. And so they still get a step up. Yeah. <laughs> There's hope. There is. There is hope. <laughs> there for is us. definitely hope. Progress is definitely not straightforward. There's a lot of hiccups. <laughs> yeah. But um, we still have to fight because as long as we're alive, it's worth fighting for. It. Yeah. Our hopes and 
acceptance and love and positive love. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, in closing, where can we see you lead? You go to certain places on a regular basis. In Silver City, one of the places that I regularly go to, and we have a monthly reading where we have a featured reader and then open mic, right. is called the Tranquil Bus Coffee House. Oh. It is a really artist-friendly nice. place. Very nice. And if people come from here to Silver City and I know about it, I can arrange a special reading for them there as wow. well. I have done that for uh, couples, David Chorlton and Roberta uh, Chorlton. He's a poet, she mm -hmm. is a violinist. Okay. They have done a beautiful, beautiful performance there together. Oh, wow. That is the main, I think, place that I would say is, is open to poets and uh, writers mm -hmm. in in Silver City. There are, you know, libraries and, and stuff, right. but they always, you always need special arrangements first. Right, right. Cool. Wonderful. And I know you have a website, so if you want to tell us that and any social media links you have. Well, I have my own website, which is secretdaughter.net. Okay. And it can also refer you to a blog that I'm doing. It's called Writing in a Woman's Voice. Mm -hmm. And that's easy to Google. It, it comes up. I've tried it from various different computers, not my own. Mm -hmm. But it is the place where I almost daily post writings by other women. Mm -hmm. yeah. Usually I get poetry, uh, sometimes I get stories, mm -hmm. and almost every day something goes. There are a few weeks in the year that I take off for solstices mm -hmm. and for the equinoxes, and also when I know ahead of time that I'm going to travel, I might not schedule right. something. Right. But it's been very lively, and we're coming up to our a thousand and one stories. Wow, <laughs> they'll probably great. happen in January. Wonderful. Yeah, I have posted many, many things, and some of them are absolutely wonderful. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In fact, all of them are, but some are even more wonderful than others. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When I hear other people's poetry, I'm always inspired. It always makes me want to write more. Yeah, same here. Yeah, same here. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to be on Poets and Muses. I really appreciate you telling thank our story. Thank you, Imogen, for inviting me. I'm, I'm honored to be here. So wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. The White Rose was actually a Munich-based student group, and Operation Paperclip was the program under which the U.S. government secretly brought in 88 Nazi scientists to be a part of our defense and science programs. As always, you can follow us at poetsandmuses.com and via social media on Instagram, Twitter, as well as SoundCloud under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter either at poetsandmuses.com or at the upper right-hand side of the Poets and Muses SoundCloud page. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you have a wonderful week, and I look forward to bringing you another episode next Sunday.